Hello, welcome to Let the Stone Speak, a podcast where we talk about the latest in biblical archaeology and also some really interesting correlations between ancient history and the history in the Bible, as well as the archaeological artifacts that can um, really highlight that history. And today we've got a podcast for you that really does uh, discuss some interesting parallels between the ancient battles or the battles of the ancient world and also some uh, parallels in the biblical text as well. To discuss this, I've got Mr. Christopher Eames here with me. Hello, Brent. Thank you very much for being here. You've written this article, Famous Ancient Battles Not Mentioned in the Bible, or Are They? And this is just, I think, for people that are probably outside the biblical world, um, they and they like history. They would have been, they would have heard of these specific battles, I think. And then what you do is kind of discuss the battles themselves in their larger context, as brought out by ancient texts and ancient discoveries, and then look at what the Bible says about this same period, whether the specific battle is mentioned or maybe the scene that the Bible describes is very similar, I would say, uh, and parallels these historic events. So you go through three of these parallels. Actually, you go through far more in your article. We're going to discuss three of these. We've got to leave something for everybody else uh, to, to, to go ahead and read this. Let's talk about this um, first battle you mention here, one of the famous battles of the ancient world, and why we might see a parallel to it in the biblical text. Okay, sure. I will say from the outset as well that that generally what we speak about for biblical archaeology, we, we take something described in the Bible and we look for uh, and see if there's any evidence for it. Now, this, is, this article is kind of flipping it on its head right. where we're uh, taking these well-established historical events uh, that aren't so much mentioned in the Bible and seeing, okay, well, is this evidence of maybe the Bible being written at a far later time and not remembering these things, so to speak? Or are there actually hints toward these famous historical battles? So that's what I go through in this article. Several of these quite well-known battles anciently in the surrounding uh, area and time period right. uh, of, of the Bible, but that aren't so, so uh, obviously mentioned in the biblical text. And there are some really interesting parallels and, uh, and uh, information we get from the Bible about these battles. And so the first one I go through is the Battle of Kadesh, and that took place between the Egyptian Empire and the Hittite Empire around about 1274 BCE. And this took place uh, on, the, on the border between what is modern-day Lebanon and Syria. And this was a huge, huge battle. It's widely considered to be the biggest chariot battle in known history, um, the, the, there was anywhere between five, uh, I think, 5,000 and 13,000 chariots in that battle, uh, 70,000 combatants. So it was a huge battle. It's the earliest well-documented battle from the standpoint of formations, military strategies. So it's a huge battle for the ancient world, and there's no mention of it in the Bible. Right. Or is there? Right. <laughs> so this is kind of the gist of the article um, and these battles that, that we'll go through. So chronologically, this Battle of Kadesh fits with around about the middle of the Judges period. And if you, if you read through the book of Judges, there's something that happens around the middle of that time period, uh, early to middle of that time period, that, that, that on its own seems crazy. Far out. But when you pair it with what was happening at Kadesh, it really helps illustrate 
the biblical account. So namely, this is uh, related in Judges 5. This mm-hmm. is the um, oppression by Jabin, king of the Canaanites up in northern Israel, and his uh, mercenary captain, Caesarea. And as part of their force with which they dominated the region, they had 900 chariots. Now, this is the only uh, significant mention of chariots throughout the judges period, and right. it specifies 900 of them. And that's a ridiculous number. That's right. a huge number of chariots. <laughs> and a lot of people have used this to kind of, well, this is obviously uh, some, some author from a later time uh, jazzing up the numbers a bit. Yeah, because this is crazy right. for, for this territory um, to, to have that kind of power. Uh, even for later kings of of nation of huge nations, that's that's a strong strong force. Mm-hmm. But when you pair it up with what was going on at Kadesh and just the flush of chariots into that region in the early 13th century BCE, actually that matches up quite well chronologically with this biblical account. And if you go through the biblical chronology, uh, this account of Caesarea and his 900 chariots of iron, as they're described, that fits probably in with a few decades after the Battle of Kadesh. So it makes sense to have this uh, this this flush of chariots in the region. Mm-hmm. And as inscriptions talk about, a lot of the Hittite chariots were kind of left in the battlefield. Uh, scholars still debate as to who really won the Battle of Kadesh. Mm-hmm. Um, you had both sides taking taking victory, a victory lap over it, although it did end in a peace treaty. So there's still debate about who actually won the Battle of Kadesh. But needless to say, you have this huge swell of chariots into the area at this specific point in right. time. Right. And then just following that, we have this biblical account of a huge chariot force right. people, in the region. If people don't know their geography, I mean, when this is talking about uh, Jabin, the king of king of Hatzor, king of the Canaanites, if you continue from Hatzor further to the north through the Becca Valley, that's going to head you right into this direction between of where this battle took place further to the north. So even prox- proximity-wise, right. it makes sense, and even you bring out in your article how it could be that um, the, these chariots of iron further replicate the Hittite chariot rather than the Egyptian chariot and that Jabin could have nabbed a few of those for his own army. You also have an interesting um, discussion about Sisera, the mercenary uh, uh, that was used to lead this army of the biblical Jabin and how he might, his his name has some interesting origins also. Yeah, that's right. Even the, the name of the captain is a hint toward uh, one of the chariot divisions of the Egyptian army. So there's been a lot of discussion about who Caesarea could have been. Uh, it seems like he, he wasn't an Egyptian himself, may not necessarily have been a Hittite either, but perhaps a mercenary. One of the theories is from one of the Mediterranean islands. Mm-hmm. But anyway, his name, Caesarea, is a close match to the Egyptian Ses Ra, which means servant of Ra. And so for the Egyptian side, they had four main chariot divisions in at the, the Battle Kadesh. of Kadesh, Kadesh. And one of them was named Ra, after the god Ra. Mm-hmm. So, so there's a good hint toward him perhaps having been over that group of, uh, of, of chariots. Probably something we'll never know, but interesting uh, attachment there, connection. So let's turn our attention to Egypt now and 100 years, around 100 years, I suppose, 
uh, after the Battle of Kadesh, and we're going to talk about another famous battle that has some echoes in the biblical text as well. Exactly. This is the Battle of the Delta. Um, Nile Delta, I suppose. Yep, exactly, the Nile Delta, and some surrounding battles as well that Egypt took part in. So this was around 1175 BCE. Um, around the time of Ramses III, Pharaoh Ramses III. And what you have uh, geopolitically at this period is a really strange period um, wrapped up in the, the, the debate about the, the Dark Ages, the Greek Dark Ages, the Bronze Age collapse. And what you have in certain Egyptian inscriptions, uh, among other things, is this wave of people, Mediterranean people, coming in to the Levant and Egyptian territories and besieging them for for whatever reason Uh, and these people are known as the sea peoples Mm -hmm. kind of enigmatically known as the sea peoples they're listed as including uh, a range of different people but among them especially uh, the Peleset people and the name Peleset is a good match with the Philistines of the Bible as in it's a, it's a perfect match mm-hmm. for that of the Philistines. And we've talked about the Philistines earlier on, a, on an earlier episode of, of this program about how the Bible describes two separate branches of the Philistine people or the people living in the Philistine land. And that's the Canaanite Philistines initially described in the book of Genesis. And then from the judges period onwards, we have the Mediterranean Philistines or the Kaftarite mm-hmm. Philistines. So what you have, uh, again, dating chronologically to about the middle, uh, post-middle of this judge's period, you have this massive massive series of battles taking place, especially documented between Egypt and the Sea Peoples. Mm -hmm. So Ramses III, he defeated uh, the Sea Peoples up north in Syria. He rushes back to Egypt at this time because he knows there's a sea invasion coming and he set it up perfectly in order to lure the sea peoples and their massive sea fleet into the Nile and then to ambush them with his own, uh, with his own people. So what you're basically saying with this point is, is that, or this battle is that um, you have the influx of the sea peoples to Egypt, there's a massive battle taking place and then the Bible itself, this is the... I guess really the beginning of the time where the Bible takes off and talking about the Philistines being a, being the enemy of the of the Israelites. Yeah, exactly. So what's uh, particularly notable about the Sea People's invasion is that they came with their women and children. Mm. So this is more than just a simple conquest. This was evidently some form of migration taking place from whichever Mediterranean islands they originated from, the various groups of them originated from, uh, and the Bible itself makes a note about the Philistines coming from Kaftor or Crete, and we've mentioned that in a previous program. Uh, but you have this, this, this wave of not only troops, but people defeated at Egypt and then resettling along the coast of Canaan, along the coast of Israel, on the, on the uh, Levant shoreline there. And quite remarkably, it's from this point onwards that the Bible picks up talking about a Mediterranean oriented Mm -hmm. group of sea people or or Philistines rather that begin oppressing the Israelites. So uh, from Judges chapter 10, this is the very first Philistine oppression of Israel that you have. 
And then if you read on from Judges chapter 10 uh, through to Judges 13, 14, 15, it's like a snowball effect. There's one Philistine oppression after another, after another. So it's like uh, all of a sudden there's this emergence of this Philistine group that immediately begins oppressing the Israelites. And that fits really well with the invasion of the Sea Peoples, their attempt to perhaps settle in Egypt along mm-hmm. the coast. Pretty They're close re- to where they did settle. Yeah, exactly. And they're repelling by Ramses, and therefore they're resettling about as close as you can get right. along the Levantine coast uh, bordering Israel. So that's <clears throat> two examples I would say that are, are, are pretty more, are more aloof. I think this third one is, is very specific, a famous battle in history that Israelites actually took part in which I think people will be very surprised to, to hear about. Sure, this is the Battle of Karkar, and it took place uh, in, in the year 853 BCE between King Shalmaneser III of Assyria and Assyria-led Levantine alliance. So we've got Assyria and Syria, Syria's alliance, fighting against the Assyrian king. And this battle is pretty well documented. It's, uh, it's one of the major uh, well-known historical battles of the ancient world. It's well documented on the III's Kirk monoliths. So there's many of these uh, monoliths, you say. What, what are, what's a monolith and um, what's on it? Sure. Uh, there's a couple of these monoliths that are displayed in the British Museum uh, in particular. They're about two meters tall. They are victory stealers, as they're sometimes called. Basically, the, the, in the ancient world, it was quite common for a, a successful victor to, to uh, establish a big stone monument covered with inscriptions, uh, establishing himself as the greatest thing in the universe right. and how the gods helped him to defeat this enemy. So this was the case with Shalmaneser III. And he actually lists the coalition that he was fighting against. So led by Syria. Mm-hmm. Um, and it included, as written by Shalmaneser, the so force... this is not the Bible. So this is not the Bible. It included the force of Ahab the Israelite. Mm-hmm. And it included a bunch of other people in the coalition too. And what this, this monolith in particular record, records is the number of chariots that were contributed, and the number of troops that were contributed. So uh, King Ahab of Israel, according to this inscription, contributed 2,000 chariots, which again is a huge number, and I believe it's 10,000 troops. So when you compare that to Syria, so so this coalition was fighting for Syria, because Karkar, uh, where, where the attack happened, is in northeastern Syria. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was in Syria's special interests to be leading this fight, but also the Levant as well. They wanted to stop uh, the king of Assyria from spreading his uh, power and influence through the area. Uh, but when you read the account of Syria's uh, might, it's slightly less. So Syria had, I think it was 1,200 chariots mm-hmm. as compared to uh, Ahab's 2000. So this has spurred a lot of debate as to whether or not there was even scribal error on the part of writing this monolith. <laughs> like we hear a lot of, we hear a lot about that with regard to the Bible. Well, right. they're just typing it up, this or right. that. Right. Um, but here you have actually an artifact attesting to a very powerful Israelite force, 
And, well, no, that must be wrong because, right. I mean, the Bible's wrong and, and we Israel can't, can't, we can't be glorify, this powerful. We can't glorify the power of Israel. But why is it then that, <coughs> that um, the Israelite force would be fighting on behalf of Syria and yet they're contributing more men or at least more chariots to the fight? Right, and this is a, this is a point brought out by, by skeptics as well. Like Israel couldn't have had a more powerful chariot force than Syria. And also, when you look at the biblical account, it describes Israel and Syria fighting against one another. Right. So what on earth? What, what, what's this monolith doing describing them in a coalition with a larger Israelite force right. attempting to hold off the uh, Assyrians, King Shalmaneser? And actually, this fits really well with the biblical account and biblical chronology. So as one of our recent articles on Solomon's Temple pointed mm-hmm. out chronolo- chronologically, this fits with uh, the final year of King Ahab's reign. And the Bible describes the last three years of Ahab's reign as being one of peace with the king of Assyria. So before king that time... Syria. Of, of Syria, yes, um, of the northern kingdom of Syria. So before this time, there had been several battles between King Ahab and King Ben-Hadad of Syria. Um, and ultimately, that ended up with King Ahab being the victor, overthrowing totally Syria, but yet the Bible describes him sparing the life of Ben-Hadad and actually entering an alliance with him Mm. and allowing him to rebuild his strength. And this alliance lasted three years, the final three years of King Ahab's reign. Now, the Bible does talk about in the final moments of Ahab's reign, Ahab turning against the king of Syria. Mm -hmm. And there's, in the article, I I go into some of this as well. But needless to say, the three-year block of time fits perfectly with the Battle of Karkar, and it fits with the Kirk Monolith's account of that not only uh, coalition of Israelite and Syrian forces, but the fact that the Israelite force was the more powerful one because Ahab was the dominating king at that time as those bat- earlier battles had established him as, as the more powerful king. So, yeah, so in this case, I think it's interesting. As you say, most of the time we use, we use secular history or archaeology or inscriptions outside the Bible to help us understand the biblical events. But in this case, you know, this the Kirk monolith... I mean, the Bible can kind of help us understand some of the scenarios or the re- the, re- the reasons by the, with these different number of forces from understanding the biblical text as well, and that's that's pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and yeah, the, it helps illustrate the Bible, and there it helps illustrate several points as well because the Bible talks about from that point of Ahab's death, um, right around that same time, you have the Moabites rebelling. Mm-hmm. And that only makes sense if Israel had lost so much strength at the Battle of Karkar in which the king of Assyria was ultimately victorious. Like the king of Assyria just wiped out 2,000 chariots, 10,000 soldiers of Israel. Right. So that also helps explain why in his final rash decision, King Ahab would perhaps turn against the king of of. Syria, right. uh, because of this failure of the Syria uh, Syrian king at Karkar, and it could also help explain why King Ahab uh, elected the forces of Judah to help him defeat 
the king of Syria if his own Israelite forces had been hollowed out so much. And then following that, following Ahab's death in that final battle against the king of Syria, uh, the Bible again, uh, I think it's Second Kings 2, uh, talks about the Moabite rebellion and these peripheral tributary kingdoms that were tributary to Ahab falling away and rebelling against that formerly strong kingdom of Israel. I don't think too many people bury themselves in Samuel King's Chronicles and and the book of Judges because there's so many details to it. But I think if people do do that, and your article just does a good job of bringing all the dots together, they'll see it's a history book that involves far more than theology or or what's just happening in inside Israel proper with prophets and kings being warned or things like that. But it really does touch on the outside world as it relates, I think, to the people of Israel. And, and if people heard a lot of Assyria or Syria and they're getting a little confused, I, I think this article does just a wonderful job at um, putting the biblical event in in its right context with this Battle of Karkar. What other, we're not going to touch on these, but maybe you can talk about another couple of examples you give in your article about how the these massive conflicts that people will know in the historical world are featured in the Bible also. Sure. Well, uh, to give you a teaser of what comes throughout the rest of the article, we've got... Uh, a little divergence on the siege of Samaria, which is a little bit different because it is mentioned in the Bible and in historical texts. But what's really unique about this is that there was also an Assyrian insurrection, so to speak, a palace coup that was going on at the same time that's almost deliberately hidden from history and in a way the biblical account as well. So just to leave you with that, there were, there's... Uh, an explanation of that and hints toward that taking place in the Bible. Uh, we also cover some of the Persian and Greece uh, Greek wars. Many of our listeners will be familiar with the Battle of Thermopylae, the 300 Spartans uh, and some of the surrounding battles, um, Plataea and Salamis. But maybe they're not so familiar with the connection to the book of Esther. So we go through that a little bit in this article and then um, I couldn't resist. We have to get into the Battle of Troy <laughs> right. for this for this article. So this one I put right at the end. Uh, it's more of a mythological account that we know of from Homer. But actually, what archaeologists have been finding is that there is a real core historicity to Homer's account, and right. a lot of these other historians' account accounts who speak quite categorically about this battle, and. There's some really interesting biblical information that that hints toward this battle taking place. So you'll have to read the article to find out some of those, uh, some of that information. But I'll just leave you with that teaser for now. So this article is entitled "Famous Ancient Battles Not Mentioned in the Bible, or Are They?" It's been written by Chris, and uh, you can go to ArmstrongInstitute.org.org to find this find this article to catch you up on the deed more of the details uh and some of the historical sources chris goes to to back up some of his claims and you might you especially want to read this for the one about part about troy <laughs> i think you'll be very interested uh very interested in this in that part of it as well um so that's the website you can also if you want to send some feedback on our program let the stone speak you can write emails to letters at armstronginstitute.org don't forget also if you haven't signed up for our free 
magazine of biblical archaeology. It's called Let the Stone Speak also. You can get this for free, as I said, um, by going to the websites and you'll find it there on the, on, the, on, the, on the front page. Or you can just send a request to, again, the email letters at armstronginstitute.org to get yourself a copy. Please avail yourself of this article and this information. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much, Chris, for writing this and, and bringing it to us. My pleasure. Thanks, Brent. And thank you again for listening, and uh, we'll talk to you next week. Thank you.